0: Hello, all, and welcome back to Gleeman Radio's Return to the Wheel of Time podcast. Today, we're going to be covering chapter 25, The Traveling People. And this was a truly solid chapter. I loved it. I really did. All except one thing, and that's ARAM. Because I hate Aram with a fiery passion, and it's it's really bullshit, okay? Because I ask Baalzamon just one, just one little favor, you know, blast him out of the pattern with balefire, and. The Heart of the Dark himself is like, No, we can't do that, because Aram's already locked into the pattern, and if we do that, something else worse might happen. Besides, I'm not going to use Balefire. He's afraid to use Balefire, and he's the... Okay, what? It's it's, it's just... He won't help me, whatever. I do all this crap to cater to him so he can have an easier time on the podcast, but he just won't do one little thing for me. That's fine. That's fine. Whatever. Okay, whatever. I guess I'll just have to deal with Aram's storyline all over again. But, like, sure, whatever. Uh, speaking of Zaman, he will not be appearing in this episode. You see, he showed up Friday when this podcast was supposed to be released. My apologies. I Honestly, I truly am. Uh, and... He was not pleased. I was only 70% through my notes, but I wanted to do some extra research. Read up a little bit more on the Twathwan, lead up on the song, you know. Make sure I had everything I wanted to talk about for this episode. And he just thought I was wasting time, so he told me to call him back with the damn Tarongrial he gave me the other day. And I, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it today because one I don't have a rubber glove to keep myself from being electrocuted because I guess that's his idea of a joke uh and two we're, we're not going to do a Balsamon Q&A today and I don't really want to deal with his temper tantrum so my apologies to all of you Zaman fans out there but he won't he he won't be showing up today uh really I, I I am sorry if I had been a little bit more on top of things it wouldn't have been an issue but You know, so, I guess I'm going to have to do the spoiler warning and recap myself today. So, uh, this is a spoiler podcast. Uh, If you have not yet read all of The Wheel of Time, uh, I would suggest leaving and coming back to this podcast when you have. Um, Considering the pace uh, I've been setting, by the time you're done, I'll probably just be finishing The Eye of the World, so... (laughs) Uh, yeah. Uh, today specifically, I'll be talking about things, uh, that appear in the Shadow Rising. So, yeah, if you haven't read all of the series, turn back now. You do not want to be spoiled. Uh, it, it's just, it wouldn't be a great thing. Uh, also, let's go with the, what's the recap? Uh, last time. I believe it was flight down the RNL, wasn't it? And there was Rand and Matt and Tom, Marilyn, and Rand was dealing with some channeling sickness, and Matt is unfortunately under the thrall of the dagger, and Bale Domon MVP throwing out all this epic foreshadowing for later in the series. That was just, just beautiful. I loved it very much. And, uh, but Bale Delmon was kind of pushing the crew a little too hard, you know, worried the Trollocs were after him and not the boys, uh, and Tom Marilyn is a bit concerned about a mutiny. Yeah, well, that was, that was the recap and spoiler wording. I think, I think I'm ready to just jump into the chapter breakdown. All right, see, that wasn't so hard. What is Balzman always complaining about, Really? (sighs) <sighs> Alright guys, here's the clip of the day and let's just jump right into this chapter, shall we? But she sees the seeker of that band by his coat and this is what she said, word for word. Leaf Blighter means to blind the eye of the world, lost one. He means to slay the great serpent. Warn the people, lost one. Sightburner comes. Tell them to stand ready for he who comes with the dawn, tell them, and then she died. Oh man, isn't Michael Kramer's narration here just excellent? I mean, y- you can tell, that's not Parent talking, it's not Elias talking, it's certainly not Egwene or Isla, that is Rain, and it has to do with how he does the delivery, and I love it so damn much. Oh, Michael Kramer and Kate Reading are such talented narrators, and I, I'm just, I'm a little bit, little bit saddened that we get so little Kate Reading in this novel, but we'll get more of her next time, when the girls go to Tarvalin, so. Moving on, today's chapter begins with a three-day journey through the wilderness with Perrin and Egwene following Elias as he leads them in the correct direction towards Camelin. They had awoken on that very first morning, with Elias already roasting some newly-fetched rabbits on the fire, and uh, soon after, I guess eating, they never actually state that they eat, maybe they just pull some meat off and carry it with them, I don't know, they head out once more to begin their journey south... East, I believe, I don't know, it says they go south and east, maybe they're not going straight southeast, I don't know. One thing in this chapter I absolutely loved was the fact that Egwene tried to bully the old man into taking turns riding Bella, much like she did Perrin earlier. And at this point, the curly-haired blacksmith apprentice, he didn't even bother to argue, right? You know, other than insisting that Egwene rides first. But then, she stated in a matter-of-fact tone that Elias would be the one to ride next. But in this case, her stubbornness and bullying did not work. Um, Elias comments that Bella looks as afraid of him as she is of the wolves and probably doesn't want him on her back. Which, if you look at Bella in the book, she's like, yeah, I don't I don't like it. Because she's kind of rolling her eyes whenever she sees him. She is not into it. And he also, much like Perrin, stated that his own two feet were good enough with him. But just like last time, Egwene wasn't having it. She's like, you know, she told the wiry old man not to be stubborn. Which, honestly, uh, is pretty damn funny, considering the source. But... Yeah, and she goes on that it was sensible that they all ride sometimes, you know, it, that that's only natural. Why, why should we not all take turns? And it's kind of fair. It isn't entirely wrong to suggest it. It's only wrong to try to force people into it if they don't want to. Uh, but unlike Perrin... Elias did not concede to the spoiled mayor's daughter and simply gave her a firm i said no girl in a growl much like a wolf uh sometimes honestly i think elias is almost as cool as lan and I mean, i'm just going to i'm just going to throw that out there <laughs> and uh Perid was wondering if gwayne would actually succeed Uh, in bullying Elias like she did with him, but then to his surprise, he saw her very nervously backing away from that steely-eyed gaze until she was back up on Bella's saddle and ready to go. Perrin's like, whoa, oh, why can't I do that? (laughs) It was fun. It really was. Um, as the day—I need to stop saying um—as the days wore on, the small party, accompanied by the wolves, uh, made <laughs> made very steady progress going forward, not hurrying but not slacking either. You know, traveling till twilight each day, which is you know a pretty long go of it, uh, with the wolves, Hopper and Dapple and Wind coming and going as they pleased. Sometimes bringing in squirrels and rabbits to the humans for food, which is really nice of them and pretty damn cool at the same time, if you ask me. Uh, (laughs) Although, at the same time, would you eat a piece of meat carried to you by a, a wolf or a dog? I mean, like, I guess they'd skin it and then cook it so it wouldn't really have the saliva on it anymore. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd be cool with it. However, there were some who didn't think it was so cool, and that's Bella and Egwene, and they both proved to be pretty damn uncomfortable. Around the wolves, you know, constantly throwing nervous and anxious glances around, always looking out of the corner of their eye, wondering when the predators would next suddenly vanish or appear. And while at the same time trying to pretend that nothing was wrong and they felt no fear, but very obviously, you know, eyeballing everything in a little bit nervous way. I, I Again, very amusing Uh, but understandable. She doesn't want to show the predator's fear. I, I, I get that. Um, I think wolves are honestly one of the coolest things ever. But if I was just wandering the woods and I saw a wolf, I'd be like, oh, that's, I wouldn't be like, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. I'd be like, oh my God, it's a wolf. Uh, and I have no weapon and it's probably going to get me, (laughs) you know, It, it, it makes sense that they're nervous, especially Bella. Um. Perrin, on the other hand, was having very different problems. He wasn't afraid of the wolves, probably a side effect of being able to communicate with them, you know, mentally and knowing that they meant no harm. There was just one problem though. He didn't want the ability to talk to wolves, you know, to know psychically when they were coming or going or how far out they were or which direction they were headed. He 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 just wanted to be a normal bloody blacksmith. Was that really too much to ask? (laughs) Now, while I get Perrin's resistance to change and don't begrudge him for this, at least not this early on, on a more personal note, these powers seem awesome! Talking to wolves sounds so damn cool, and he doesn't even have the proper wolf brother powers yet, like heightened senses, or, like the sight and smell or hearing, you know, and he doesn't have the ability to enter the wolf dream yet, which is just, oh, I swear, if I could get any ability from the Wheel of Time, it would probably be either a wolf brother or a channeler. And I'm honestly leaning a bit more towards Wolf Brother, honestly. Uh, I think my favorite Wolfie power of all is the empathy smeller, you know? Being able to read someone's emotions, uh, I lost my place. <laughs> being able to read someone's emotions through the scent alone seems like it would be so damn useful, I mean, imagine navigating the frustrations of dating or getting a job, right, through empathy scent. Oh, this really seems to frustrate her, even though I, she's not saying anything about it, so I better stop. Or, oh, I see, she said this, but really felt that. I got it, I got it. Oh, this manager doesn't like me the moment I walked in. Is there any way I can fix this? You know, just, just, just so cool. So damn useful, and all we, and and we all know Perrin's gonna be on this, I don't want to be a wolf kick for a very, very, very long time, (laughs) and it's just, I get it now, I just don't really get it in like, I don't know, book five or six, when he's still kind of, well, I guess I am a wolf, but I wish I wasn't one, you know, that kind of, I I don't, I just don't, I (laughs) it's fine now, Not later. That's all I'm saying. Anyways, back to the story. Um, The gang traveled for three days with Elias and the wolves, fetching plenty of food to feed themselves, you know, with both the wolves and Elias doing hunting. But Perrin... Oh, Perrin thinks he'd rather be going hungry than have to deal with Elias and the wolves reminding him he's becoming something that he really doesn't want to be. Which seems kind of ungrateful, especially since he noticed he hasn't had a Baalzaman dream since he encountered the wolf brother and his furry little friends. I mean, what what would you prefer? Going hungry and being haunted by the devil in your dreams, or having a full belly and there being a wolf in your dreams? I, it doesn't seem very difficult to me. I, I, I just, I, I, I just, I'm just saying. He dreams of everyday things now, like he might have before Bairlon and Winter Night, with one small change. That, in fact, makes all the difference whenever he looks up from a book, or working at the Forge, or steps away from Mistress Luhan's table after a fine meal... There was a wolf nearby, always facing away from him, watching out for danger. And he also remarks that the wolf being there only seems out of place when he wakes up and remembers the dream. Again, shouldn't he be more grateful to his new furry little friends? I I just, I think he should. I think he's being a little, little ungrateful here. Just, just, Just a bit. Just a bit. Uh as they travel on the thick forest gave way until there were only thickets of trees you know spaced here and there and about and as the small party approached one of these thickets three massive dogs mastiffs burst out from the foliage growling and barking furiously in order to scare away the travelers Egwene and Bella were startled of course and Perrin reached for his sling, thinking a stone in the ribs would scare even the meanest dog away, which is, I don't know, kind of mean, but understandable. I, I, We'll just go with it. But then Elias waves him down and began like this piercing whistle with his fingers in the air. And the dogs watched his fingers as Elias whistled, increased in pitch, and then suddenly he began to lower his hand decreasing the whistle's pitch as he did until his hand was low to the ground and the dogs lay sprawled on the ground as well tongues lolling out completely at ease and uh <laughs> oh i remember back in the day i used to really like this scene i thought it was amusing if understandable that gwen and bella were startled But I like even more how Perrin and more so Elias took it in stride, you know, ready to burst into action, always thinking of a situation, you know, always thinking that if a situation like that happened to me, I'd be able to react more like them. You know, be a little surprised maybe, but calm enough to think rationally and make a decision. (sighs) But I'll tell you what, that's not exactly how it went down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Back before I moved up here into Colorado, I lived in an apartment complex in Oregon and sometimes I would like to go to the 7-Eleven around the corner late at night. However, (laughs) there was a neighbor of mine who felt that there was no real need, need to watch his German Shepherd or put it on a leash if it was like, I don't know, past midnight. So... When I finally was faced with this similar situation, I did not handle it as well as I wished, you know? Because if you walked too close to the bushes on that side of the street where his, uh, you know, apartment was, that dog would just burst out of the bushes, teeth bared, barking and growling. And uh, personally, I, I, I usually jumped in fright. You know, yeah, it, not my greatest moment, but, like, I, I, I ask you, if you were confronted by a German Shepherd in the middle of the night with bared teeth, would you also react calmly? I, I, I don't think you actually would, um... So, yeah, it would just come out barking and growling and I would like jump and fright a little bit or I'd be really nervous every time I passed this place at dark after a while because this happened more than once. This happened more than twice. This happened like half a dozen times over a year and it was awful and eventually the guy moved out because I wasn't the only one that was having problems with this dog. So, you know, I, I I would try to walk back walk past as best as I could, you know, trying to act like I was minding my own business cuz the one time I ran and the thing jumped out at me, uh it chased me all the way down the street before turning around. I was outside this enorm- enormous apartment complex before this thing turned around, and it was it was awful. It was awful. <laughs> Anyways, sorry for the tangent there, back to the plot. Uh, <laughs> Alright, moving on from that tangent. Uh, both Perrin and Egwene were quite startled that Elias was able to control the dogs so easily, like, jaw-dropping surprised. Uh, but then the old man tells them something that takes their minds completely off the dogs, or at least off their surprise, uh, and that's that... The dogs actually mean there are Tuathuan nearby, also known as the Traveling People. Um, And I found the blank looks on the two Emmons fielders really interesting, because it's not until Elias provides yet another name for the Traveling People that Perrin and Egwene actually understand who he's talking about, the Tinkers, and I also love... The completely opposite reactions we get from both Perrin and Egwene here. Because Perrin is actually kind of eager to meet the Tinkers. Because apparently the Tuathuan come down to Tarren Ferry sometimes. But never down to the lower villages like Emmons Field. So, apparently Mistress Luhan had somehow obtained a Tinker Mended Pot. Maybe she sent someone up to Tarren Ferry... To uh, get it mended, but that doesn't make sense because they almost never go to Tarn Ferry. So I really have no idea how she got the Tinker Mended Pot, unless she bought the Tinker Mended Pot. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But regardless, Master Luhan is not happy about it because you know it's probably his job to do that kind of work around the Emmons Field, um, along with the more you know important work he does as a blacksmith. Uh, and, uh, Perrin was really kind of eager to see how the mending was done, so he wants to meet the Tinkers. However, Egwene, on the other hand, has no interest at all. She, she displays contempt for the traveling people, you know, further displaying yet another reason why she'd get along so well with the Iel in the future. You know, she kind of gives this disdainful sniff and suggests that they, well, they should camp somewhere else tonight, you know, and avoid the Tinkers, because, you know, they don't want Bella stolen or anything else they might have. I mean, Bella is their most valuable asset, but still, they don't want her stolen, and... I love how Elias, who doesn't really want to stay with the Tinkers or meet up with the Tinkers, still gives Egwene a hard time about her assumptions of the traveling folk. You know, saying they steal no more than any other people and less than some he could name, and also denying the claims that they, you know, steal infants, which is... Wow, that's a horrible thing to say about anybody. Uh, And apparently, that's the kind of stories that the Coplins and Congers like to tell about the Tinkers, which, of course, those are the stories those little shits would tell, right? Uh, (laughs) Anyways, in the end, Perrin actually convinces them, you know, we should stay with the Tinker Camp, because there's really no reason not to. Why Why avoid these people when we can, you know... Get some social activity going, or whatever. Uh, and Elias is just... He doesn't he doesn't want to, but whatever. So he takes the lead, and the dogs are trotting along at his, his side like his best friends, and they go on to meet the Wathawan. And he shows, you know, a reluctance to meet up with the people that Perrin can't quite understand. Probably because Elias is a warrior, and the Tinkers are pacifist, you know? They mix as well about as well as oil and water Uh, and Elias tells them not to pay any mind of some of the things the Tinkers might say and that sometimes they set store by formality so just do what he does and they'll be fine. He does however warn them not to say too much about their you know situation right now which Kinda sounds obvious to me. I mean, the only reason they told Elias the truth is because they were surrounded by growling wolves and a yellow fur-clad man threatening to kill them if they didn't. I don't really think they're gonna be running their mouths about Trollocs and Shatter Logoth and the Dark One around the Tinkers. It just doesn't seem very likely to me, but... You know, I guess to Elias, these kids seem kind of like idiots, so maybe he feels like he needs to warn them about this. I don't know. Uh, I also like the moment where they're heading into the camp, and Perrin can feel the wolves slowing down and falling back. And he notes that the wolves seem kind of contemptuous of the dogs, who'd given up their freedom to sit next to the fire beside their masters, which is a little bit of a Odd example to me because the wolves kept laying down with Elias and the Emmons fielders next to a fire. (laughs) But I guess the wolves are free and the dogs aren't. I guess that's supposed to be the big difference. Anyways, so the small party walks into the tinker camp, and I like how Perrin was kind of, you know, he's a little bit disappointed at how normal and everyday. The work around camp was, you know, people cooking, cleaning, children playing, men mending harness and the like. However, if the work was normal, uh, the people were not. They lived in large, brightly painted wagons and wore clothes in incredibly bright colors, apparently not caring if the colors worked well together or were, you know, at all pleasing to the eye together. And seeing the scene, you know, some men working, some women working, some dancing, some playing instruments, children laughing and playing with the huge dogs, you know, tugging on their ears and tails and climbing up onto their backs and whatnot. Perrin describes the scene and the people as in it like butterflies among wildflowers, which (laughs) doesn't sound very attractive to me. I guess I just don't like too many bright colors, to be honest. Anyways, uh, moving on, I also like the fact that the kids were able to play with the big, you know, huge, massive dogs so well. (laughs) Why did I say big three times? I don't know, it's just odd to me, because the way Perrin describes the dogs is like, you know they could rip out a man's throat with barely standing on their hind legs. And I'm like, shit, dude, are these dogs the sight of ponies? Good God, (laughs) you know, Perrin's like six feet tall. So if he's saying that barely getting off its hind legs, a dog could rip out a throat, that is massive dogs. Okay. My, my stepbrother had a Brazilian Mastiff and that thing was enormous, but it still wasn't big enough to rip out someone's throat, barely getting up off the ground you know, it's its upper paws. It would it would it would have to do a little bit of a jump, you know what I mean? It would have to raise its body at least, you know, a third of the way off the ground, not barely at all. So I mean, I just imagine these dogs as being absolutely massive. You know, I think that's why I keep, you know, making such a point of it. But anyways, it reminds me of back when I was a uh just a little kid Uh, I don't know, maybe toddler age, we had this tabby cat named Norma, and she had totally adopted me, right? Uh, She slept in my crib, followed me around the house, and everything. She was just my little protector. And it always amazed me that some animals, much like Norma, could... uh, ...understand that this is just a small child who doesn't know any better, and doesn't react badly... When a kid tugs on tails or ears like that, you know, apparently little toddler me tried to pull Norma around the house behind me by the tail, but she never bit me or scratched me. Not even once. Like ever. I just, it's crazy. I love how certain animals are like that. Oh, shit. Another personal tangent. Back to the chapter, Gleyman. Keep it focused. Uh, So upon entering the Tinker camp, the crowd freezes silent and waiting to see if these people are a potential threat uh however rain appeared to meet the visitors he is the seeker the Mahdi, and an old friend of elias and after exchanging the customary greeting everything seemed to return just fine honestly i've never seen myself as someone super into formality really uh i feel like casual is best for the most part uh, I remember that once I was trying to get a job and I was like 19 and my stepdad was forcing me into all these formal clothes for the interview, and, I, and, and I'd understand if I was going to apply at like an office or something like that, but I I was going to apply to work at a warehouse. And, uh, when the job was turned down and I asked the the manager, like, what did I do wrong? He's like, well, it's the appearance you gave off. You came in dressed all nice and this is not that kind of place. Uh, you, you need to be more casual. And I I came home and yelled at my stepdad. Another personal tangent, Clayman? Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) honest, yeah, honestly, I've never seen myself super into formality. Uh... But I love the greeting and farewells between the Tinkers. We'll get to the farewell later in another chapter, but here, I just I just really liked it. Uh, Rain began it with a bow, and he goes, You are welcome to our fires. Do you know the song? And this is followed by a similar bow from Elias, along with the response, Your welcome warms the spirit, Mahdi, as your fires warm the flesh. But I do not know the song, and Rain concludes with a Then we seek still, as it was so, and shall." Oh, wait, god, I messed up again. Then we seek still, as it was, so shall it be, if we but remember, seek, and find. And with that, Rain's voice loses his formality, and with a just big smile, he invites them to his fires. Uh, declaring that the food is almost ready, so join us, join us, please. Uh, And I'm sure they're fine to sit down with some food, yes. After traveling and all this stuff, you get tired walking miles and miles and miles and miles, you really do. So yeah, uh, with the Rain's invitation for them to join the fires, the camp becomes jovial and at ease once more. Uh, Next, we also get a short conversation between Rain and Elias, making it very clear the two actually know each other, and more than just casually, you know what I mean? They've met each other, obviously, more than a couple times, you know, because Rain asks just a a bit nervously if Elias is, you know, quote-unquote... Friends will be staying away. To which you know, Elias replies with a shortly that you know he should know that by now. <laughs> you know, oh, y- y- your friends will stay away, right, Elias? They scare the poor dogs. So, <laughs> and Elias is like, come on, man, you know the wolves don't like coming near people. You should know better by now. And Elias <laughs> is like, I know, I know, just checking, just checking. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of times, the Taviran argument seems like it can be a bit of a shortcut to make things happen the way Jordan wants them to, but this, this, again, it feels different to me. I mean, think about it. After fleeing Shadar Logoth, Perrin finds himself in the company of someone who can guide him through his wolfy change. And introduces him to the very same tinkers who will be in Emmon's field by the time Perrin goes home. He learns the formal greeting and everything, not to mention we learn from Elias a bit about the song the tinkers have been searching for um and it all all of this comes together again in the fourth book. The origin of the Tinkers and the Aiel, the true meaning of the song, meeting the same caravan once again, it all happens in the same book, and I love it. I love it so damn much. It's so cool. Uh so as the three follow Rain and uh oh Rain to his fire, Egwene asks what this song they're talking about actually means. What is it? And Elaine uh, <laughs> Elaine? Elaine's not in the book yet. And Elias replies that that's why they travel, uh, to search for the song. That's what the Mahdi, the slash seeker searches for. They believe that once they find the song, the paradise of the age of legends will return, which, um, is a little bit nonsensical, but whatever. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's cool that in a reread, we actually know the answer. We know what the song is for. The Mahdi searches for his song, but we know the search is meaningless. We know that the Tinkers came to be as a result of a split, the first split of the Deshane Iel, when some of their number was tired of being attacked for carrying the ice, ice burdens, and simply wanted to find somewhere safe to be and rediscover the wondrous songs that they used to sing. You know, we also know the origin of the song too, from Rand's little adventure in Rudion. It's the song of growing. That's literally what they're looking for, but they don't know that. The song the Aiel sung alongside the Ogier and the Nim to make crops and nature flourish. But we also know that the Tinkers don't accept this as their song either. As apparently, Loyal and possibly other Ogier have taught them the Song of Growing. But by now, after thousands of years, the song they seek has become more of a philosophy or or an ideal. Something that's unfortunately practically unattainable. Which is really kind of sad. The Tinkers will search forever. For something that does not exist, um, however, we also know that there's practically the only surviving culture from the age of le- legends still practicing the way of the leaf, following the breaking of the world. It's kind of cool to know that there is a idea that's kept intact over three thousand years. That's that that is a a. a good thought that through all of this decline and loss of knowledge and everything, at least an idea and a good idea that, you know, benefits people still exists. I mean, we may not always agree with the way of the leaf, but we can't deny it's a, you know, bad thing to be, you know, believe that no one should hurt another person. There's nothing wrong with that. Unfortunately, in the current timing they're in, it's not very practical, and they believe everyone should follow it. But you know, whatever. Um. Anyways, they finally reach Rain's fire and wag it. I'm saying anyways and um a lot in this 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 podcast. So they reach Rain's fired wagon, and his wife Ela was coming down the steps wearing a red and yellow, a red blouse and a yellow skirt, or was it a yellow skirt, yellow shirt and a uh, yellow blouse and a red skirt? I don't know. It matches her wagon, in shades bright enough to make Perrin wince, and Egwene actually made a strangled sound at the sight of her. <laughs> Which is kind of rude, but, like, I don't know, people have their own opinions on what looks good. (laughs) Uh, However, after sharing just, like, two words with this woman, you know, they felt so damn comfortable that they had already forgotten about, you know, her clothes. Uh, I mean, even Perrin says that she reminds her of Mistress uh, Mistress Althor you know marin alvira mistress althor good god marin alvira gwain's mom who's you know like the town mom because you know she's the uh yeah uh so they all sat down together by the fire with ela tending to some kettles on iron tripods over the fire which is really cool and they even had like a little portable iron oven in the coals it's just so cool i didn't know they had stuff like that And everything was going so well. There were fun interactions, interesting dialogue, some awesome foreshadowing and callbacks for a reread. And then he came and almost ruined everything. In case you haven't guessed, folks, from my earlier rant at the very beginning of the podcast, I hate Aram. I hate him so much. Oh, uh, can we skip him? Can we not talk about him? No? no? You sure? Oh, okay. So, this dumbass pretty boy appears at the cook fire, and it turns out that this little jackass is Rain and Ela's grandson, Aram. How someone this shitty came from people as wonderful as them I'll never understand ela jokingly remarks on how unusual it is for him to eat alongside his grandparents all the while casting a and amused and knowing looks making it very clear that the only reason aram is here is because he's a flaming horn dog wanting to hit on a Gwaine, and his grandmother knows it <sighs> Not that I blame him entirely. I mean, I always imagined Egwene as a very pretty young woman. But seriously, have you seen the casting pictures for Egwene? What am I thinking? Of course you have. Uh, Madeline Madden, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, is breathtaking. No wonder Gawain and Galad pined after her so much. I mean, seriously. Beautiful. I also love how her picture kind of makes you think, oh, yeah. Oh, she's 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 stubborn too. It's like you infer things. Am, am I saying infer correctly? You make assumptions based on what you know of the characters as you look at the pictures, right? Like you look at Nynaeve, and you're like, oh yeah, she's gonna kick some ass, right? Uh, and then you look at Egwene and you're like, oh, she's so pretty and stubborn as all hell. You know, you just look at it and you're like, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh speaking of casting, I'm also pretty excited to see Marcus Rutherford taking up the role of Perrin. Uh, he looks pretty cool, though he looks to, like, you know, a pretty fit guy. I mean, but I mean, no offense here, but if he's really going to take over Perrin, I think he's going to be half. I think he's going to have to spend a bit of time in the gym. You know, I've looked the guy up and tried to see some full body pictures of him. And he seems to have more of an athletic build, and he's going to have to put on a bit of mass to really pull off Perrin, you know? I mean, I've been on Reddit here and there, and I've seen uh, uh, a lot of people arguing about this fact. You know, apparently blacksmithing, according to a lot of people, doesn't necessarily make you huge and muscular. Uh, but my point is, is that Perrin was always big. That's how he talked about it. Even as a little kid, he had to be very careful because, you know, he was so much bigger than everyone else that he didn't want to accidentally hurt someone. So, I, I mean, absolutely no no offense at all to uh, Marcus Rutherford uh, in case he ever hears this, which like, I honestly doubt. But, you know, uh, I think he's got to put on just a little bit of mass, you know, put a little bit of time in the gym. He doesn't have to get yoked, okay? Just just a little bit more muscle on the frame and we'll be good. Because if it's true, again, I don't have a lot of experience on this, if it's true that blacksmithing itself doesn't pull, put on bulk... It's fine because blacksmithing would obviously put on muscular endurance. You know, the you're working your muscles, but you're not you're not really, you know, making them bigger, but you're making yourself stronger and able to do more. That's that's what that is. But he, he, he just needs to get just a little bit bigger. And I hope I'm not a jerk for saying that. I don't know. Um, another tangent <laughs> seems to be my thing today. Uh, well, let's stop talking about awesome things like Wheel of Time casting and how great they're doing and talk about a shitty asshole tinker, shall we? Uh, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. So, Aram approaches the fire and casts a cool eye over the newcomers like he's trying to be all all, 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 all suave and interesting and cool, but he's not. He's just not in any way. And then he introduces himself to Egwene, and Egwene alone, in a soft but confident voice. You know, because Aram is a worthless playboy. (sighs) So he's like, hello, I am Aram. And uh, then he gives the line this ridiculous, awful pickup line... That honestly seems like it should be some kind of joke. I mean, what woman could honestly take this full seriously i i I don't get it if there are any uh ladies listening uh let me know in the comments or email me or twitter me does a aram actually have game because he just seems creepy and nasty to me i i uh. so yeah, here's the line, okay he's like. I've waited for the first rosebud of spring to bloom, and here I find it at my grandfather's fire. Seriously? I mean, come on. That's just as bad as the. Are you an angel? Because you seem to just like fall from heaven, or. Oh! Or, uh, what's the other one? Have you been working out? Because that hurt you more than it hurt me. And, you know, thats I, I gotta be equal opportunity, right? Uh, <laughs> Oh god, it's just awful. By now, these are gimmick lines, right? These are jokes that only could ever have any possible success when you're already in a serious relationship and you're joking around with your partner. These aren't introduction lines. Even parents just waiting for Egwene to scoff and laugh at the dude. But she's not. She's clearly interested and I don't get it. You know, I just just don't. But I'll give her a pass because she's far away from home for the first time in her life and she's been spending the last couple weeks literally running away from walking nightmares. We'll let the girl have a little fun and wait to take shots at this ridiculous until she starts meeting and panting over Glot, okay? We'll wait for now. But seriously, I I, I do not get it. I just... mm. Uh, It's around this time that Perrin realizes who Aram reminds him of. And that's a dude from the Two Rivers named Will Alseen. uh, Who appears to be the Two Rivers version of a playboy. Courting every girl in sight. All the while, apparently, according to Perrin convincing all the rest that he was just being polite to the others. Oh, Funny enough, though, Will does appear in book four, uh, and one of the first things he does is try to hit on Fai'il. <laughs> Until Perrin, like, puts a hand on his axe and an arm over Fai'il's shoulder, and he's like, what's up, bro? <laughs> How you doing? You met my girl Fai'il? <laughs> Ah, see, he, see, this is all I'm saying, okay? Fael's not the only one that gets jealous, okay? Perrin just does not like pretty boys, especially pretty boys talking to girls he likes. I mean, even if it's just like Egwene, someone who ha- he has uh, a sis- a brother sister bond with, right? He's like, oh god, Arem sucks, right? Or when Will seen is talking to Fael, he's like, nah, 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 you worthless piece of shit. <laughs> fayel's not the only one that gets jealous that's all i'm trying to say <laughs> and fayel actually liked it when he got jealous that's what that's the thing i think she expects him to feel the same way but he just doesn't uh, <laughs> anyways and it's not like he distrusts fayel it's more like he just doesn't like this dude you know who throws his smile about i cannot abide a man who smiles too much which is interesting, because one of his best friends is mad, but whatever. (laughs) Anyways, in an attempt to divert Egwene's attention from the dumbass, or just perhaps to avoid paying attention to the little shit, Perrin asks about the large dogs, commenting on how he's actually quite surprised that they let the children play with them, seeing as how they're so damn big and imposing but it's aram who unfortunately answers and says that they have it's is they're fine they're fine they won't hurt you they just make it a a a a show of scaring off people they're trained in the way of the leaf oh, they're only meant to discourage and scare people who are mean who mean trouble it's uh. I don't like the way he looks at Perrin appraising him when he said, you know, the dogs look dangerous. And it's almost like he's like, oh, you scared of the dogs, big guy? It's like, screw you. Screw you, Aram. If you were chased, If you wolves appeared right out of nowhere, you'd be all running away like a pansy. So just, 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 just be quiet. Just be quiet. <sighs> Anyways. I'm saying that way too much. <laughs> I need a better transition word. Egwene asks... What this, what is this way of the leaf, you know? And ironically, it's Aram that begins the explanation. Ironic, because he doesn't end up following the way at all, eventually. eventually. And he even has a hard time doing it now. But whatever. Let's let's just hear this dumbass try to explain his the his family's philosophy to us, shall we? You know, saying the way a leaf means doing no violence and then talking about how every leaf falls in its own appointed time without complaint, you know, and uh <sighs> Perrin still doesn't understand because, you know, Aram's a dumbass and doesn't explain things well enough. And then his reign, thankfully, who continues the explanation? Thank the light the seeker says that, in short, there is no excuse for violence, not ever and I like how I like okay, that's what it is. I like how he says this with a side look in Elias like there's no reason for it, and Elias just kind of rolls his eyes like, whatever, dude, this is a very, very old argument, <laughs> so Perrin asks well. What if someone tries to attack you, or rob you, or kill you? To which Rain gives a patient sigh, instead of an exasperated one like Aram. Because Rain is not a piece of shit like his grandson. And he says that if someone hit him, he'd ask why they do such a thing. And that if someone tried to rob or kill him, they'd run away. And if they can't, they'll die, without ever raising a hand hoping that their attacker isn't harmed too greatly, which thoroughly confuses Perrin, you know? (laughs) He's like, "But, but you said you wouldn't hurt him. And the Mahdi explains, well, that according to their philosophy... Doing violence causes more harm than receiving it. Harm to the very soul of the attacker. And then he goes on to use a truly excellent analogy of how Perrin's axe can easily chop down a tree, seeing as how the, the, you know, steel is much stronger and harder than the soft wood. However, with every strike, the axe will grow duller, and duller and the sap from the tree may rust or pit the blade again a really solid analogy and i like it a lot the rust and the pitting and the dulling that's all what happens to the soul when you do violence it's a it's a it's a fine analogy i love it a lot and it's so much better than aram could ever tell Alright, it's at this point that Elias tells the seeker to give over his recruitment speeches and that he didn't stop by, you know, with the kids for Rain to conform them to the way of the leaf. Now, at first, I thought this was kind of rude simply because Rain was just answering questions. You know, he didn't, you know, and Rain himself says I, he doesn't set out to recruit anyone. He answers the questions he's asked. And yes, it's mostly the young who ask. And yes, sometimes the questioners like what they hear and leave with the tinkers. But after hearing Elias's wry response of, Yeah, you tried explaining that to some farm wife after their son or daughter runs off with you tinkers. And uh, I'm not feeling it's as rude anymore. It kind of seems like more like two very old friends or at least, you know, decent, long-running acquaintances kind of ribbing each other, you know? So, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. However, Hila is not, you know? She puts on her fiercest, firm mother face, you know? I kind of imagine Mrs. Weasley at her you know, um... Fred and George did something wrong and Mrs. Weasley puts on an angry face. That's what I'm imagining from Isla right now. <laughs> and she kind of scorns Elias, you know, asking if she, if they should instead leave the youth to him to instruct in, you know, the way of fight or die, which honestly, I get her point too. She just wants the best for, well, everybody, really. But let's be realistic here, Isla. We're entering the final days of the Third Age, and Tarman Gaiden is right over the horizon. So I'd say fight or die is the better route right now, at least when it comes to war with the Shadow, you know? No need to have men killing men right now, but the Tinkers apply this no-doing violence to, you know, when the Trollocs attack too. So, yeah, i go with fight or die, honestly. Me? Yeah, fight or die. (laughs) Rain reminds Isla that Elias has been welcomed to their fire, and she drops the subject, but as Perrin notices, she did not apologize to the wiry old wolf brother either. <laughs> She's just like, all right, fine, fine, I won't, I won't, I won't talk sense, I guess, I'll just leave you dumb asses to, <laughs> I like Isla. Uh, moving on, we get to the point where Perrin, has gathered his thoughts enough, and has a response for the seeker. And I like how parents not arguing, not disrespecting their pacifistic beliefs, just sharing his own opinion, one I firmly share with the Burly Blacksmith Apprentice. If someone hits me, I'd hit them back, or I'd be just encouraging them to do it again Whenever they wanted. There are always people in this world. Who think they can take advantage of others. And if you don't make it clear. That they can't. They'll just continue on bullying. Anyone they think is weaker than them. (sighs) And this. Is where Aram once again. Opens his big fat stupid mouth. Where it's not wanted. Giving a deep fake, sad sigh and saying that there's just some people who can never overcome their baser instincts, making it very damn clear he wasn't referring to the bullies parents spoke of. Ugh. <laughs> this son of a oh, you know what? You know what? I don't want to finish that. We know Aram has a mom nearby, and while we never meet her, there's no saying she's a bad person. There's no saying it's her fault her son is such a little shit. She may be just as kind as and warm-hearted as her parents. Uh, huh. Okay, okay. We don't know anything about his dad, right? Okay, okay, got it. This little bastard thinks he can just insult Perrin? Just for giving his honest, bloody opinion? In a respectful way, too? Really? And then this little shit has the gall. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about it when I said it or wrote it down. Gall. <laughs> <sighs> okay. This little shit has the gall to say anything about baser instincts all the while he's trying to get under Egwene's skirts. Really, little prick. <sighs> at least Perrin doesn't take his di- bullshit lying down. He comes back with an incredibly satisfying. Oh, I bet you get a runaway a lot. Oh, so damn great, so satisfying. Oh, I bet you get to run away a lot. I love it. I love how he didn't say have to run away a lot. You know, he said get to. Oh, so damn good. And the little pretty boy's bastard face tightens in a way that has nothing to do with the way of the leaf. Already showing his darker side that we're going to have to deal with later, but whatever. Moving <sighs> on. But for some damn unknown reason, other than pretty boy, I guess, Egwene comes to Aram's defense, saying she thinks it's great that some people think there's other ways to deal with problems rather than using their muscles or the hair on their chest. Really? Yeah, Aguain. Yeah, I bet everyone should be like you and just browbeat people into submission, you know? Like you and the wisdom, right? right technically no violence there just being a bully so much damn better I, I i don't know what to tell you folks sometimes i like this aspect of the girl's characters sometimes i don't i guess it really just depends on the context of the si- situation but uh, uh anyways aram takes Egwene away to eat with her with his mother and go dancing to which he happily accepts again I really thought better of Egwene at this point, at least when it comes to something like this, but I guess I'm wrong. Poor Isla, too. Her and Rain seemed pleased, so happy that their grandson was going to just hang out and eat with them, too. Nope, nope, and they looked really disappointed when he left. She's like, but, Aram's, but dinner's almost ready, Aram. And he's just like, we'll eat with Mother, and then he gives Perrin a triumphant look. We'll both eat with mother. Like, screw this dude. It's just, I feel bad for Rain and Isla. But then again, I'm not surprised at Aram. This little shit got exactly what he wanted, a Gwaine, and now he's off. And then here we get a bit of Perrin actually being a good dude. You know, he feels like he was rude. And he apologizes to Rain and Isla because that's what a dude with manners does. Take the hint, Aram. But then they tell him not to worry about it and that Aram <laughs> is a troubled boy. See, even his grandparents know he has a goddamn problem. It just, oh. Rain admits that some people find the way of the leaf a hard way even among the Tinkers. Prompting Perrin to ask, well, what happens if a Tinker can't follow the way? Which causes an uncomfortable, you know, rain to say that they go off and live in the villages, you know, and that the Tinkers would then call them lost. Lost, it's very important. HeLa uh, says that the lost can never truly be happy. And I'd like to point out that the term lost here you know, you know it is. You know it's pretty significant, but we'll just we'll, very important. But we'll 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 get to that just a little bit further on in the chapter, shall we? Oh, the dogs just will not stop barking in the kennel out back. I I hope you guys can't hear it. They drive me fricking crazy sometimes. <sighs> Moving on from the apologies and questions of philosophy. The food was finally done so everybody dug in except Egwene and Aram. Yeah, cuz they're both ungrateful jerks. Now, Perrin No, I'm sorry. I said per I saw something is in my notes that started with a P and immediately went to Perrin. It's now personally, you know, it had a P E R. What what do you expect from me people? <laughs> now, personally, I don't feel dinner is really dinner without meat. You know that, that that's just me. I actually saw a a, a Twitter post uh, the other day that had a steak and then there was a picture of a cow on it, and it said, "My name is Chloe. I was murdered for the sake of people wanting this to eat. Don't eat me. Meat is murder." And then I just typed in the comments, "Chloe looks delicious." You know, I'm a, I'm a carnivore. I can't help it. I love love meat. I actually have meat in front of me on the desk right now that I'm going to eat the moment I'm done with this podcast. <laughs> I have a summer sausage on my shelf, okay? I have jerky on my bookshelf. Meat means everything, okay? <laughs> however, you know, I, I felt, not however, uh. And I felt the Wolf Brothers would feel the same way as I did, you know, no meat, really? Well, I guess this is food. But between them, between Perrin and Elias, they ate seven bowls of Isla's vegetable stew. Making me honestly want to give it a try. If these guys think it's that good, I would love to get it a shot. Let me make it clear, I don't think every meal in existence needs meat, but like, I need at least one solid meal a day with meat in it you know but yeah this vegetable soup sounds delicious i really wish i could try it uh now with that out of the way and the food finished Perrin was rather comfortable in the fading sunlight leaning back and fading in and out of sleep you know honestly with the music and the singing and the dancing all around them it it sounds like a pretty comfortable atmosphere And, uh, Elias and Rain lean back, and they're lighting their pipes, and they're smoking next to the fire, and it just, everything seems nice. And that's when the best... Okay, what just happened? I just, what? Okay, my notes just started fluttering up and down. I didn't know what was going on. Um, where, where is it? Where is it? Oh, oh, okay, there we go. But but this is where the best part of the damn chapter is, and, it be, and it's a story Rain wants to share with Elias, passed on to them from one tinker caravan to the next. A story of a group of the people traveling through the Waste and their encounter with a dying Aiel warrior with an important message to Relay. So Rain begins his story stating that the events he was about to Relay happened about two years ago. A group of the people, you know, the Tinkers, I keep saying the people, and I hope you guys get what I mean, you know, uh, were crossing the Aiel Waste by the northern route when they came upon a mortally wounded Maiden of the Spear. And just these two fo- facts alone caused Perrin, like, great surprise. First of all, that the Tinkers would dare enter the Waste at all, And second, that there were female Aiel warriors. Uh, I love how Perrin had to reconfigure his thoughts on the Tinkers. You know, he's like, Well, with all their thoughts on all their talk of running away, I figured they must be scared all the time. But nobody who was scared all the time would enter the Aiel Waste. From what I've heard, nobody sane would enter the Aiel Waste. Uh, Elias explains... There are a few groups allowed to enter the Waste without fear of, you know, death by spear. And the first is Gleeman, the second is Peddlers, if they're honest, or more importantly, not Kyrianon, and the third is Tinkers. He also states that the Kyrianon merchants used to be able to cross the Waste freely until that, you know, bad business of chopping down the tree. Uh, but I don't know how much we've learned about that scenario yet, so we'll just leave that alone for now. Next, Elias explained that if Ail ladies don't want to get married or take up a trade, you know, they'll often join one of the warrior societies. More specifically, Far to rise My, Mai, the Maidens of the Spear. Rain, however, comments, though, that it's less like they're welcome in the Waste and more like they're shunned and left alone as the ayil almost never come come too near them, you know? Just watch them pass from a distance, which is part of what makes this story so interesting. The Seeker goes on to explain that sometimes ayil go off into the Blight. Sometimes one man alone who, for some unknown reason, thinks he was chosen to hunt the Dark One. I like how this was mentioned here. And, you know, as we return readers know, this is, you know, this unknown reason for entering the Blight, it's that the young Aiel man could channel, you know? However, we can only hope that they they, they manage to die fighting, because otherwise the alternative is, um unpleasant and uh, unfortunate (laughs) however mostly I travel into the blight in small groups to hunt Trollocs and it's kind of funny here that we can tell that Rain and Hila even disapprove of hunting Trollocs I mean I suppose it is violence but what else did they expect to happen do they think they can explain the way of the leaf to shadow spawn or that if they faced with that darkness they should just lay down and die probably the latter but it's it's frustrating because if everybody followed that way of thought the shadow would win <laughs> the group in the story was a small group of maidens quite young too Ela says they were little more than girls Heading back from the Blight, so a little more than girls, I'd say they're probably like Egwene's age. And all were dead save one, surrounded by heaps of dead Trollocs, three times their number. Oh yeah, we get right away how awesome Aiel are. You know, a group of Aiel maidens took out like a shit ton of Trollocs. Which shows how badass they are, which means Rand should let them fight more, but we're, we're, we're really not to that point yet. So, <laughs> I don't even know why I brought that up. Uh, but this really, like, really got Elias' attention. Because he's like, whoa, what? Trolloc's so far in the Waste? That's unheard of! That's ridiculous! <laughs> and here, he gives us the Trolloc name for the IL Waste, Waste, which is pure, unadulterated Badass. Like I, I wish I could remember what he said in the old stung. Old tongue. It was like kudish kushar or something like that. I got it completely wrong, but it sounded so cool. But it means the dying ground. How cool is that? Can you imagine how many Trollocs must have died for that name to stick? Oh, yet again, it's apparent a a uh, uh, right of you uh, know. Uh, uh. I messed up. I messed up again. Yet again, it's apparently a rite of passage and common practice for Aeel to head up into the Blight to hunt Trollocs for sport. So, that's, that, that, that's just what happened. Uh, the only surviving Aeel uh, from this raid hauled herself over the Tinkers and grabbed the Caravan Seeker by the coat, you know, delivering her final important message before she died. Uh, now, I know this was my clip of the day, but I'll read it again because it's so damn awesome since it's so interesting and cool. Leaf blighter means to blind the eye of the world, lost one. He means to slay the great serment, serpent, warn the people, lost one. Sightburner comes. Tell them to stand ready for he who comes with the dawn. He- We've had two chapters with Perrin and the two most recent chapters have Perrin hearing one of Rand's nicknames for other prophecy chosen ones. When he was in Wolf Brother, Elias told him about the sea fo- No, 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 I was wrong. I was very, very, very wrong. We've had two chapters in a row that talk about, uh, rand's chosen one names but it wasn't two parent chapters i totally misstepped on that it's Baal domon who's talking about treasure on um Tramulking and the hand sticking out and that all the sea folk care about is uh sailing their ships and finding the coramore their chosen one and then in the very next bloody chapter we get the name he who comes with the dawn i just they're already laid down. The Koromor thing doesn't happen until what? Book 7 or 8? And the He Who Comes With The Dawn doesn't happen until, again, book 4. I love how all this shit keeps coming back to book 4, man. I swear to God, if if somebody, like, reads a book... And waits and reads a book and waits and reads a book and waits, right? Give themselves some uh compression, relax time. I swear, if 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 they get to book four, they need to just reread the traveling people from Eye of the World just to get their their, their recap. You know what I mean? It's crazy. Um, Rain explains that Leaf Blighter and Sightburner are names for the dark one. But other than that, He really doesn't know what to make of the story, even though she hated them. She trusted them with her message, and they can't make heads nor tails of it, and it really kind of makes them sad. Who are the people that they're supposed to tell? They themselves are called the quote-unquote people, but he's sure that the Aiel woman didn't mean him or them. The Aiel? Well, they couldn't tell them if they tried, as they make a point to keep their distance. And then Rain drops the quote, I wanted to talk, uh, you know, okay, there, there it is, there it is. I keep getting messed up in my own notes. Then Rain drops the quote I wanted to talk about from earlier, where he said, she called us the lost. I never knew before how much they loathed us isn't it interesting how even though these two peoples come from the same origin but have gone in completely different directions as the thousands of years and ages past they still have the name the same name for those who have abandoned the way each see as the right one Oathbreakers breakers are lost for the aiel the tinkers are the lost ones and for the tinkers those who pick up weapons or give up their way of lies of passivism are called the lost it's the same thing and it really makes me feel that at one point the original the, the original tinkers you know the, those original split from the deschain iel felt really guilty and that's that can be the only reason that the, the name the lost can stay so well So impactful. I just... I I love it. I love it. I love it so much. Other than clan chiefs or wise ones, none of the Aiel truly know why they call the Tinkers the Lost One. They don't know that the Tuath One were once the same blood as they. However, they broke their oath to the Aes Sedai, dumped the priceless treasures they swore to carry, and went off to look for a song and a place of safety they might never find. And honestly, I still never understood why the Tinkers just don't live with the O-gear or in an abandoned setting. Probably the clo- closest they could come to peace, right? But I guess they're called the traveling people for a reason, aren't they? But still, could you, like honestly, if you're like, oh, the world is falling to shit, I'm a pacifist, and I don't ever wanna deal with violence, I only want like bright colors and, 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 and wonder and, and love and happiness, You'd live with the Ogier, right? Can you imagine, like, wh- any kind of better con- protectors? The Ogier would be like, aw, you humans are so nice. Oh, you're going to help us grow some stuff, or you're going to help us do this and that? Oh, great. And then they hear somebody mess with their tinkers, and they're like, oh, you done pulled the mountain on your heads now, and the ogre's cracked their giant knuckles and set to work. I- I- I'm just saying, if they want safety, they need to go to the ogres. Whatever like whatever. I guess they'll just go to the Sean Chan. Apparently slavers slavers are better, but whatever. Um Anyways, Elias thinks that the maiden might have been rambling, half dead and delirious. I mean, come on, blind the eye of the world, kill the great serpent, kill the symbol for time itself? Really? But Rain was just like, "No, friend. She knew exactly what she was saying." And who she was saying it to He just wished they could understand it, you know? And he thought they might have their answer at last when Elias came in, you know, but you know, since he was uh and then Elias is like nope, 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 mm <laughs> and then uh Rain changes, you know, uh since you were uh an old friend and uh no many things. <laughs> Uh, But Elias admits he can't make heads or tails of this. You know, silence came after this from the men at the fire, only broken by the sounds of song from the camp around them. And Perrin thinks a bit on the story too. He definitely heard the term Eye of the World before, but since it had to do with his dreams with Baal'samon, he really didn't want to ponder on it too much. And then he went to think about Elias, how does he so know so much about Shadowspawn and the Aiel and all that? And what was Rain about to say that Elias cut him off? Psst! He was going to say Elias was a warder! <laughs> now, I've actually been wondering this for a little bit. Why is Elias trying to hide this information from them? I looked back at the Wolf Brother chapter, and I didn't get a definite answer if Perrin told the wolves in Elias, that they were escorted by a warder and an Aes Sedai, or he told them that it was Moraine and Land specifically. Because we know Elias and Lan know each other, and if I remember right, liked each other well enough too. But then, I remembered that Moraine is a proper Aes Sedai to her core. Not the squabbling, self-entitled Aes Sedai like we see, we'll see we see in the Tower soon enough in the next book, but a real Aes Sedai, servant of all, fighting for the right reasons and the right thing for a proper Aes Sedai to do when they hear about a rogue warder is to go fetch them and escort them back to their own Aes Sedai for penance, and maybe Elias wants to avoid that possibility. So, thinking of it that way, maybe that's why he didn't tell them. Well, if I let him know, they might, you know, go send someone to fetch me back. And probably one of the only people that could track Elias through the woods and take him back would be, I don't know, Al Land Mandragoran, last lord of the seven towers, and uncrowned king of Valkyr? I think so. <laughs> so he's like, well, shit, if he's got a, lay- a land on his side, I want to be as far away as possible before he knows where I am. <laughs> <sighs> Lastly, Perrin wonders what Aiel maidens were like, you know, going off to hunt Trollocs in the Blight? They must be crazy, they must be like badasses. And personally, when I first read it, I pictured a bunch of naives armed with clubs beating the crap out of some Trollocs in a, in a wasteland, <laughs> which was a really funny thought. And one of those few first impressions I can still properly recall. From my very first reading, which is is just fun tell me you tell me you don't feel that like 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 hmm, who are these badass, scary, awesome warrior women that would fight i and like, yeah, just a bunch of naives like clubbing a trollic over the head. It's brilliant, I love it, <laughs> oh, anyways, Perrin hears Egwene coming back singing to herself, and he jumps up and goes to meet her. And she looks at him, head cocked to one side, curiously, and then Perrin asks her, you know, if she had a good time. And she's like, yeah, we ate with Aram and his mother, and then they danced, and laughed. (sighs) And then the large, curly-haired blacksmith takes his life in his hands by saying, you know, Aram reminds me of Will Alcine. And that in, the, in that, Egwene, apparently, had always had sense enough not to let Will put her in his pocket. An interesting expression, but understandable enough. However, Egwene responds in a tight voice that Aram is a gentle boy who makes her laugh. Yeah, Egwene, I'd love to love it if you saw him much later in the series. And we'd see what you thought of that kind and gentle boy then, right? When he's listening to the prophets nonsense... Why don't you go see how gentle he is then, Egwene? He'd probably run a sword through you, too. Because he's listening to the Prophet, and you're an Isidio who can channel. So he'd probably try to kill you. Let's see how gentle he is That I, I need to let it go. I need to let it go. <laughs> I hate him so much. Like, so much. <sighs> okay, but Perrin, being a good guy, you know, being the good guy he is apologizes and says, you know, I'm glad you had a good time, Egwene. Laughter and dancing's probably a really good way for her to avoid thinking about the nightmares that have been chasing them since winter night. But, you know, at his kind words, Egwene just breaks down completely and throws her arms around Perrin, crying and holding on to the solid dude for comfort. You know, she's like, tell me, tell me again that they're alive, that Matt and Rand and Perrin and Mo- Oh, Matt, Rand, and Perrin, that Matt, Rand, and Tom, and Nynaeve, and, and, and Land, and Moraine. tell me they're alive. And, and and Perrin, like, has no idea what to do. He's very, like, awkwardly patting her on the shoulder with, they're there. They're totally alive. It's it's okay. <laughs> and she's like, oh, that's what I wanted to hear. You're such a nice guy, Perrin. And she gives him a kiss on the cheek for thanks and heads off for sleep with Isla. And, yeah, again, honestly, I really like Perrin and Egwene's sibling-like bond here. And the more I reread these chapters and think about them for the podcast, the more I wish we got more of these two spending time together after this book. But it never really happens. I think this is the last book they spend a significant amount of time together. And it's it's kind of sad because they had a decent dynamic other than, you know, Egwene's bullying. But, again, sisters bully too, so whatever. Watching her disappear into the wagon with Isla, Perrin does one of my favorite running gags in the series and wishes he had Rand or Matt's way with girls. Ah, I wish Rand was here. Rand would know what to do. Rand totally understands girls. <laughs> uh, if I remember right, when Rand uh, thought Perrin... I'm sorry... When Rand met Min, I'm pretty sure he thought the same thing about Perrin, which was amusing. I I love it. You know, he thought the same thing about you, Ibarra. It's it's all fine. You're all awful with the women, but it's okay. (laughs) The chapter ends with Perrin hearing the wolves howl in the distance and thinking, well, at least I won't have to think about his, you know, my furry little problem till tomorrow. Uh, (laughs) He was wrong, of course, because, you know, the wolves are waiting for him in his dreams to protect him, gosh, parent, like I said earlier, you should be a little bit more grateful, dude. What would you rather, a wolf guarding your dreams or Baal Zaman invading them? Because I'll tell you what, having Baal Zaman as a co- co-host, he invades my dreams and gives me shit a lot, okay? He fucking gives me nightmares weekly, okay? I would prefer a wolf in there guarding my back. That's all I'm saying. You know, I think we all know the answer. Wolves are better than Baalzman, <laughs> oh, and that is the end of chapter twenty five The Traveling People. It was good. I loved it. Oh, I loved it so much, except aram. <laughs> aram is a sucky piece of shit. <sighs> all right, uh Ba will probably be with us again next time. He's probably gonna give me a lot of crap for uh, doing this podcast without him. You know, the, the 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 his master doesn't really like him not being here because he thinks this is a good platform to influence people in the ways of the Shadow. But we know not to take his crap seriously. After all, how many times has he asked for a friend of the dark tier? And when have you guys said, yeah, I want a friend of the dark tier? You haven't. You haven't. That's all I'm saying. So... Uh, but I, I think we might be, I think Baalzaman's Q&A segment might be coming to a close. We're getting a lot of a harder time getting questions, but I would like to try something else. Which is, a you know, ask Baalzaman not just simple questions, but get his advice. If you have a personal question, or if you're trying to work something out, what let, let Zaman be there for you, say like, hey zaman I'm trying to get this job, and I'm having a really hard time with it, what's your advice for this, or, you know Baalzaman, I've been arguing with my significant other, and, uh, you know, what do you think, who do you think is winning this argument, you know, nothing too chaotic, I don't want any tension here, this is always all for fun, but i guess we can all be rest assured that the betrayer of hope definitely has your best interests at heart <laughs> oh man Uh oh, that's it everybody always remember review us on itunes i think we only have three right now or at least i'm in america and i can only see three i've heard that if we get them in other countries, I can't see them unless I do something special, and I, I don't know what that is. So definitely give us more reviews on iTunes. Get get us out there more so more people can watch, not watch. Can more people can listen. Uh, leave me comments even if it's about absolutely nothing. Email me. Uh, tweet me on Twitter whatever also remember to start sending in your questions for the new ask Baalzman column where Baalzman takes a personal interest in you and helps you out with your personal problems let's hope this doesn't make your life more of a mess (laughs) (sighs) I hope you have a wonderful day wherever you are morning afternoon or evening thank you so much for listening take care now Bye.